Hi, my name is Matt Smith, and this is the Smith Sense Podcast. We've got a very fun episode for you here today. My conversation with my friend and mentor, Doug Casey. In this conversation, Doug and I talk about the money system, its history, and how it's set up to the detriment of most Americans. We talk about how the prospects for real war have increased dramatically over the last several months. We talk about what Doug Casey's investing in right now. Doug and I talk about inflation and deflation. We talk about fractional reserve banking and how it sort of works in reverse to contract credit and cause deflation. We talk a little bit about what the future might look like. And of course, we spend a little time talking about Doug's series of books, which I strongly, strongly encourage you to read. I think you'll love this episode, so sit back and enjoy. Before 1933, when FDR confiscated all the private gold ownership in the U.S. What was the money system like then? How did it actually work? Because people say gold-backed. How did it actually work? Well, the problem really started in 1913, which was a horrible year for civilization in general. 1913, the Federal Reserve was founded. And of course, 1913, they passed an amendment that made the income tax legal. And It was only the income tax and the ability to print up money, which is what the Federal Reserve does, that facilitated World War I, which was really the first great disaster of this century. That's when things started to change. And even though with the creation of the Federal Reserve, fractional reserve banking became part of the national economic fabric, the dollar was still redeemable with gold until 1933. In other words, if you had a $20 Federal Reserve note, it said on the note, redeemable, with didn't say one ounce of gold, it said $20 of gold because it was fixed. Price of gold was fixed at $28.50 an ounce. But this is the problem with fractional reserve banking. You don't have enough gold to redeem all of the pieces of paper that say they're redeemable in gold. And you just hope that everybody doesn't run down to your bank at once as in bank run, to uh, redeem their paper for gold before everybody else does. This was a uh, a fraud, quite frankly. I know it's taught in economics class as being an important and necessary part of the whole financial system, but it's not, because money is just a medium of exchange and a store of value. It shouldn't be used as a political football. And since 1913, which is when these things were put into law, it really has become increasingly a political football, and now it's totally out of control. It's taken a long time for things to devolve. I mean, I would have thought things would have collapsed much sooner than they did, but they've effectively been able to kick the can down the road for many years. But I think we've finally reached an hour of reckoning. One of the things that maybe has gotten me really thinking about the the period before the Great Depression is actually, it's not what we're going through right now. It just is coincidental that I'm reading this book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. It's a history book told through standard of living changes in the United States from 1870 to 1970. One of the stats in there that I saw was that the typical working class household in 1927 earned $1,250 a year. So if the typical American household in 1927 was making $1,250 a year, if you just did the inflation adjustment on that, it's weird. It doesn't tell you anything. It, it's official statistics get you to $18,500, something like that. It doesn't even mean anything uh, to me, honestly. It's like, well, I guess they made a lot less than is what you think. But of course, they were paid in gold effectively. 
So the typical working class family made 60 and a half ounces of gold in mm-hmm. 1927, which mm-hmm. today would be $102,000. And they probably didn't pay income taxes on that. 1.5% uh, was the official rate. Right. So even though they weren't blessed by many recent technological innovations that we have today, within the context of their times, their standard of living was higher. I mean, you can see that as you look around neighborhoods that might have been built in the 20s. The houses didn't have paper-thin fiber walls. They were thick brick walls. They often had copper roofs on the houses, and the doors were made out of thick oak, not compost material. A lot of things like that are are indicative. Why are the inflation statistics so far off? Instead of using dollars as the standard measurement tool between 1927 and now for just for some comparable analysis, use gold, since in fact they were paid in basically gold. If they didn't get gold certificates or gold itself, they could exchange it for gold at any time. You know, that's a much more fixed currency, I think. It's uh, five times as much, more than five times as much, the value of the typical salary at the time or typical annual household income paid in gold versus paid in inflation-adjusted dollars. Why are the inflation statistics so far off? Right now, I'm in Uruguay, which is just a little bit better than Argentina. And everybody knows not to trust the government's figures that come out. They're adjusted for political reasons. People that run the government want to make things look better than they really are, or sometimes worse than they really are, depending on what they're trying to do. So even then, even if the figures were accurate, they couldn't be accurate, even if they were honest. Let me put it that way. Even if they were completely honest, they couldn't be accurate. For instance, in GDP figures, the government puts down its own production and consumption, or I should say consumption, because the government produces absolutely nothing. So that in itself is a huge distortion. Everything, the gov- almost everything, not because in many cases they've usurped the functions of uh, things that people would do for themselves in the free market. But most of what the government does is equivalent to digging holes during the day and filling them up at night. And if you did that, it would add to GDP a lot because right. you pay the workers to dig them, you pay the workers to fill them up. Yeah, okay. It's not productive. It's ridiculous. We really have to talk about the nature of money. For instance, the dollar is not actually money. Yes, it's used as money. Of course, we can call it money. But technically speaking, it's currency, which is a government's substitute for money. It's a piece of paper, which makes it is convenient to use to redeem in money. We can talk about the banking system. It wasn't so long ago that there was a big difference between checking accounts and savings accounts. Historically, they were totally different things. Today, there's, you know, one pays more interest than the other. It's a distinction without a difference in today's world. But savings accounts and checking accounts are two totally different businesses. In savings accounts, you give your money to the bank for a fixed period of time, and they give you a fixed amount of interest in return. Why? So they can lend it to a productive enterprise for a fixed amount of time at a fixed rate of interest. It's the only way they can do that as a business. Checking accounts, they're called demand deposits, are very different. There you pay the bank. There is no such thing in a free market 
as an interest-free checking account. Why? For the same reason as when you, it's like when you deposit your furniture at Allied Van, if you want to store it there. You pay them to store your furniture, just like a checking account. You pay the bank to store your money. And you would not want to go to the bank and see, or go to Allied, and found that they'd lent out your furniture because they could make more money doing that. How has it changed now? Is it checking account money is all loaned out, or is it none of it's loaned yes, out because it, they get money from the Fed, or how does it work? There's no longer any distinction at all in the banking system between checking account and savings account money. And the way the bank works, and why banking is such a profitable business, is because of fractional reserves. In a free market, in the old days, banks had to compete with each other based upon their solvency and their liquidity and their safety, their prudence. Otherwise, you wouldn't put your money in a bank. <laughs> I mean, it, it might go away. Well, today, there's no difference between any bank. It doesn't matter if your bank is robbed for that matter. You know, you remember in these Western movies when, when the gang would come in and, and rob the bank? Yeah. Well, the citizens would all come out into the streets and try and have a gun battle with the because it was their money. Their money yeah. And it was stolen, it was gone. But now nobody cares, frankly. I mean, because the, the Fed will print up new money and make it good. This is part of the moral corruption of society, where uh, nobody has to take any responsibility for anything, from the little things to the big things, because the great white father, the cornucopia in Washington, will kiss everything and make it better. This isn't just a monetary and economic uh, disaster we're looking at. It's actually a moral disaster as well. It's like this uh, safety-first culture has permeated everything, all the way from bicycle helmets to bailing out the airlines so that they don't go bankrupt to anything else you can imagine. It's like any short-term injury is seen mm. as the, the ultimate evil that must be avoided at all costs. You're right. And it, it goes right down to the family. Protective services, they must be the bane of any parents that have young kids today, because if your neighbor decides to rat you out for some real or imagined thing, you'll have a visit from a state bureaucrat, and they're fully capable of taking your kids away from you. You know, I just read something. I have to verify this, but it sounds correct. Do you know that when Richard Branson was four years old, this is just after uh, World War II, his mother took him 20 miles away from their house in the south of England, I think. He was only four years old. And she said to him, he'd been brought up properly, in my opinion, told him, now, Richard, do you think you're capable of finding your way back to the house? And he said, yes. And she left him there. If an American did that today, listen, if an American parent is caught letting his kid drink from a, a garden hose or ride a bike without a helmet, uh, I mean, they can be incarcerated. Yeah, it's crazy. I've heard that story about Richard Branson. Yeah, I read that. And I don't remember where I read it, but I read it years ago as well. And it definitely is uh, certainly the way he recollects events. And I know if I, you know, if my 12 year old daughter, if I, if she would walk half a mile, I think that someone saw her walking alone and thought that it might be a risky situation for her. You know, I could be in real oh, trouble. I don't know uh, what it might have been like where and when you were growing up. But when I was growing up in Chicago in the 50s, the only rule, frankly, was, you know, don't really damage any other kids you play with and come back home when the streetlights come on. And other than that, I mean, that was it. 
Things didn't change too much, I think, between then and the early 80s. But I think that, you know, there, people got really scared in the early 80s because there were all these hyped up kidnappings and, you know, and it became a bigger deal where parents were way more involved. You know, I felt it when my kids were young, among my friends who have kids, that there was a sense of danger that was totally unreasonable, totally unrealistic, you know, compared to the, how it was so much more crime, you know, when I was growing up and I'm sure when you were growing up in Chicago and yet, yet still people are more worried. It almost is like the, you know, reminds me of Neil Howe's like generational cycles because it's almost like, it's almost unavoidable, I think, that you have these response to prior generations and you get the, a little bit of version of helicopter parenting and then, you know, and then they break free of it ultimately and start over. Yeah, but it's actually more serious than that. Talking about the early 1980s, I remember I was watching Saturday Night Live one time and one of their skits actually used the term politically incorrect. and. I thought it was really funny, and I thought it was supposed to be a joke, but it turned out not to be a joke. That's the first time I heard the term, and now it's insinuated the whole society. I think politically incorrect, that's somewhat similar to what the Soviets used to say about somebody being politically unreliable. They're actually quite related. We're actually confronting the degradation of Western civilization itself. This is much more serious than the Greater Depression that we definitely embarked upon. Humpty Dumpty's fallen off the wall, all kinds of structurally unsound things that have been held together with the monetary equivalent of chewing gum and bailing wire. Look, the world is going to be very, very different in the next few years, assuming even we don't have something resembling World War III, which is entirely possible. And it'll be very, very different from World War II. And we will have World War III. I hate to say that. No, I, but, think, uh, I think you're right. I think that's one of the things that dawned on me in the early stages of this. You could see this sort of the virus kind of making its way across you know, the world. And I was like, you could see it coming. You could see that there were going to be implications. And you and I had a couple of conversations about it. It doesn't even matter how serious the virus actually is. It just matters that you could see that the effect it was having as it was making waves through the different countries it was going through from China, welding people into their apartments you know, to Italy completely going on lockdown and, you know, overrunning hospitals, you'd see it coming. And I remember in, in the midst of that, before it really got here in any great extent, you know, Kim Jong-un, you know, launched a couple of missiles. And I thought, wow, you know, you can see how that could explode to try and distract his own people. Or, you know, you just see all these, like, it's like a tinderbox where lots of little things could happen for their own internal political reasons, you know, could strike out and could lead to much larger conflict. And it was the first time that dawned on me. I, I felt in that moment like war, like a real war, not these, you know, not the wars we've been having. I call it more possible than any time in my memory. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And there are other things too. It's that uh, when things get iffy and scary and very, very different, it seems like people want to have strong leadership. You always hear these jerks in Washington calling for strong leadership. And actually, there are many places in the world now, like Modi in uh, India, who's practically a dictator, Xi in uh, China, who is a dictator, Erdogan is another one, and Bolsonaro in Brazil, the guy in El Salvador, definitely, there's lots of these guys all over the world. And of course, Trump and Putin, there's lots of these guys. We're just hitting the big countries right now. And generally, the people seem to like him. It makes them feel safe. And you know, when the going gets tough, people tend to think in terms of we against them, our group against their group. We're good, they're bad. 
I'm glad I live on a farm with a thousand acres around me in a backward country. It's pretty much unaffected by this. I agree. I've thought about your Estancia many times in the last couple of months and thinking that that's a great place to be. My, my girlfriend actually asked me the other day, she goes, how, how are things going for Doug? And I'm like, I guarantee it's no different. Absolutely not. And I've got to say that since we're looking at a genuine collapse of the monetary system, there are a dozen really interesting and serious things we could talk about. Everything from the long-term, gradual, but now rapidly and noticeably accelerating collapse of Western civilization. This is really, really serious. Down to something that's relatively minor, like the, well, it's not minor, but the collapse of the monetary system. So, okay, everybody's in it. Okay, okay, enough with this theory. What am I going to do about it? How do I make sure that I'm not too adversely affected by it? So, got to think about what do I do with the money I have? And hopefully, nobody listening to this is one of that supposedly 50% of the population that the Federal Reserve determined doesn't have $400 they can lay their hands on. So let's suppose we're, we're a couple standard deviations above that anyway. So what should you do? Well, the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, is to own a bond. They're triple threats to your capital. You've got the currency risk because the dollar is going to be destroyed. It really is. Interest rates are moving towards negative area. But in order for things to get better, they have to go back to levels that will discourage people from borrowing and encourage people to save. So you got you know, currency risk, the interest rate risk, and you got solvency risk. Besides, you don't know that you're even going to get back those worthless dollars. So forget about bonds, okay? Get rid of them tomorrow morning. Stocks, they've been in a bubble. I mean, we could talk about that, but I'm not interested in stocks right now for all kinds of reasons. I think what you ought to do is have a lot of gold, and especially gold stocks, which are not investments. They're speculations. It's why Warren Buffett wouldn't dream of owning a gold stock, for good reasons, incidentally. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's speculation in his mind, for sure, and he doesn't do those. No, but right now, gold is really in a bull market. I think it's going a lot higher for a lot of reasons we could talk about. Right now, there's hardly a gold mine that's producing in the world right now that has all in sustaining costs. There are many definitions of how much it costs you to mine an ounce of gold, and that's the broadest and best one. $1,000 an ounce. So every gold mine in the world is making, on the order, $700 profit per ounce, and it's going up. But money managers have been so imbued with Keynesian economics, which is not economics, actually. It's political hackery, essentially. And I know that's what everybody was taught in college. And they'll say, that's shocking. My economics professor was a smart guy. He was a nice guy. How can you say this? At some point soon, you're going to find money managers wholesale piling in to mining stocks, which are very, very cheap right now. They're close to the bottom of a seven-year bear market since the last time gold peaked in 2011. And this time, the whole market could run 10 for one, and you're going to find individual stocks going 100 for one. And I'm personally, true story, I'm not making this up. This is not ridiculous, hypey newsletter copy. I've actually owned a stock that went 1,000 to one. And not over the course of a lifetime, which would be good enough, but over the course of a cycle, four years, something like that. So now is the time to buy these things. And uh, that's what I'm doing. And I think but none of your listeners, or very few of your listeners, uh, have any mining stocks, gold mining stocks. But they should 
look into them. I feel like in my lifetime, this is all part of the same cycle, you know, from starting in the early 2000s. And it's kind of, this is like the third wave, I think is what Frank Justra, what he described it to me. It's like, this is the last leg of the uptrend. And the last one, you know, a lot of people bought, they would buy these index funds like, uh, you know, GDX, GDXJ and stuff like that. Those have come under a lot of uh, scrutiny lately about the way they're structured and that they you know, are problematic in and of themselves. And I, do you think you have to own the shares directly or can you own an index like GDXJ? I guess you can. You can own an index. But the problem with the indexes is that they basically just buy these stocks based on their size. And there's only a very indirect relationship between size and quality. And there's an inverse relationship in the long run between size and upside potential. So it takes some homework. And there's a, yeah, you can buy these things, but uh, I, I prefer to buy the individual stocks and save myself the management fee of the guys that have put it together. You know, I know in the last time Bitcoin had a big surge, you became kind of a believer in it. And the other day, Paul Tudor Jones came out and said, he's, he said, he said it reminds him of gold in the, you know, in the eighties, I think he said, or the, the other early eighties or, or no, in the seventies. I don't know if you heard that, that he had taken a position in Bitcoin and he's like the first big Wall Street legend, I think, to come out mm -hmm. like that. What do you think about Bitcoin as a way, as a speculation in this environment? I was always philosophically inclined towards Bitcoin because it's a private currency. It's yeah. not a government currency, which is government currencies are always disasters for lots of reasons. So I like the idea. What are the characteristics of a good money? It's got to be durable. Okay. That's why we don't use wheat as money. Okay, Bitcoin's durable, at least if we don't have a, a giant solar flare or there's not an electromagnetic pulse attack. Worst things to deal with, there's, there's a giant EMP yeah. attack. So let's say, okay, five characteristics of the good money, durable, divisible, convenient, consistent, value of itself. Okay, it's durable, it's divisible, it's convenient. One is like every other one. That's why you can't use real estate as money because every piece is different from every other value of itself. I had problems with that. I said, well, this is just a kind of a, an electronic dot. It's a figment of some engineer's imagination. And that's when I took my first position late, was late, August of 2017. I figured out what the value proposition was. It's a perfect transfer mechanism. 75% of the people in the world live in blocked currency countries where they only you can use things like dirhams and quatches and pulas, totally worthless really within their borders and uh, totally worthless outside. And so they're all going to go to Bitcoin. There's billions of people that will flow to it. And it's a transfer mechanism. You don't have to use the banking system, which is dangerous. And the government knows everything that you're doing. The next step that the government's going to take is to um, come out with their own digital currency. China's definitely been working on their own version of crypto. Yes, it's a real problem because then with a government digital currency, they know and they control everything you have. They know what you buy. They know what you sell. They know what you own. They can take it all away from you if you become a political undesirable. So this is a, a disaster. That's one other reason why gold is the best money, because it's good anywhere. And you can't tell where it's been or who's owned it before. It's great. They can't instantly repo it. At least they have to criminalize it and go after you like FDR. You know, and he put a few people in prison around it. but. But yeah. Uh, yeah, if it's digital and they can just withdraw it. Yeah, but scary. that's the way the world is headed towards that. And the average sheep thinks it's fine because he trusts his government. 
I think the average guy really does trust the government. Quite amazing. You know, one of the things, and I think I'm pretty sure it was you or David Glond or someone certainly Casey Research that introduced me at first to, you know, to the fourth churning and Neil Howe stuff. I remember the first time I read it was when I moved to Argentina, actually. When the financial crisis happened, I thought that was it. You know, I didn't expect them to be able to resurrect it. And so I sold my business and sold my stocks and I moved down there. I reread it in January of this year. Man, that book terrifies me in many ways, you know, for like the turmoil that comes out of it, you know, that can come out of it. The last one was, you know, started, according to Neil Howe, at the beginning of the Great Depression and ended at the end of World War II. And that the quote, greatest generation, you know, set us up for whatever, 80 years of peace and prosperity for the most part. But that course is set by the generation that's coming to, you know, coming to age during that time. And that's the millennials this time. One of the th- characteristics during that fourth turning is just the total loss of faith in institutions, like that they are demonstrably incompetent and that nobody believes them anymore. And so they get flushed away. And I think in that flushing away, there is an opportunity because they need to be flushed away, right? Because they're mm-hmm. so corrupt and flawed. But it's also frightening what might come in replacing it. Absolutely anything can happen. I mean, you know, if you look at Germany before World War II, or for that matter, before World War One, it was civilized and polite and growing and, you know, things change overnight. Same thing happened in, well, China wasn't quite the same thing, but who could have guessed how bad it would have gotten under Mao? And the same thing in Russia. I mean, sure, I wouldn't have been a fan of the Tsar, and he should have been overthrown, but he got replaced with something much, much worse. And this is true of many, many, many countries around the world. The big trend in the 20th century, starting with World War I, actually, was the growth of the state. Before World War I, the income tax didn't exist anywhere, really. Inflation didn't exist anywhere because everybody used gold. It was transferable across borders. I mean, sure, if you committed a violent crime, the police would visit you. Other than that, very little. But now everything is about the state, and it's getting bigger. So where's it going to end? Will it end in 1984? Or if we're lucky, it'll end with, like in Huxley's novel, Brave New World, or maybe something in between, a little bit of both. That seems most likely, actually, a little bit of both. The lack of faith in the institutions seems like is the one thing that could be the buffer on the state. Because if nothing else, I think that the at least the federal government has demonstrated themselves to be totally incompetent. And actually, people were surprised that like you know the federal government couldn't get anything done. For me, I wasn't surprised because our system is still basically, besides the you know signing of documents and sending money around, the real effort is really done on the state and local level. I mean, that's where everything really happens, other than wars. You know, people were surprised that like, why can't the CDC like ramp up all these kits? I'm like, well, they don't actually do anything really. Federal government doesn't really have the capability to do anything. But I guess people probably just think, well, it's just because Donald Trump, and if they had their guy, it'd be fine. Yeah, well, that's a question. Who's going to win this coming election? Because, you know, as I look at the U.S., it really seems like it's on the cusp of a civil war. It's not like in the 60s where the hippies and the rednecks or uh, construction workers or whatever were at each other's throat. That was really kind of a minor sideshow, really. It was on the news, didn't bother anybody. Some riots in the cities, okay. But this time, these people that live in the blue counties and the red counties really hate each other. It's visceral, and they can't talk to each other. So they really shouldn't even be in one country together. The Western states just signed a letter to the, you know, asking for a trillion dollars of money. 
you know, Colorado and California and a bunch of Western states, Western governors signed off on it. Well, I, I think that that's ridiculous in a way. I do like the states kind of grouping together and taking sides against the federal government. It does seem like that, that is actually feels destructive to people, but I think it's potentially very constructive. Yeah, I agree. And there might be some good that comes out of this current hysteria where people are starting to disobey yes. the rules that the government's putting down en masse. And that's a good habit to get into, quite frankly. Most people are basically go through their lives and aren't really hassled, you know, that much. But if they ever fall under the radar of the authorities, then they, they realize how unreasonable it can all be. And I think that, you know, in light of some of these lockdown orders where, like in my neighborhood, and I think it really hasn't been that bad in Colorado. It's been way worse in other places. If you own a retail store or a restaurant, obviously it's been miserable. And if you're one of the, you know, millions of people that have been laid off, obviously it's tough. But, I, you know, as we're walking around our neighborhood in the parks here, which there's two parks within, you know, a uh, half a mile of me. They had city workers come and put caution tape around the swing sets. They took the rims off the basketball hoops so people couldn't go there and shoot baskets. It just feels so weirdly punitive. And it's actually insane. It actually is because getting out in sunlight, which is the enemy of the virus, is the best thing you can do, quite frankly. Well, the weed shops and the alcohol, you know, uh, those are essential services, so they're open. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought the, the legalization of marijuana instead of like the legalization of mushrooms or something, you know, it's done for a reason. You know, you want something to make people not think and not worry and not be overly ambitious versus something that might open people's eyes, make them think more broadly. Talking about what people should do with their money, there's still people putting money in these pot stocks. Pot stocks were very, very good to me, but um, that bubble broke about two years ago. And I don't think the average guy even realizes there's still hundreds of pot companies out there that are publicly traded. And it's like growing highly regulated alfalfa with extra costs involved. But uh, one thing that's coming up, I don't know if you've noticed this, is that um, there are now companies and there's a lot of talk about legalizing psychedelics, which I think could be quite interesting. I agree. And they, they did decriminalize psilocybin in Denver. Yes. So, so it's decriminalized, but not the same thing, but it's on, it's on the right track. So to the money system, just I think the monetarists, you know, the people, the Keynesians, the idea is that I think is that if you didn't, if they didn't manage the money supply really well, if they didn't expand the money supply substantially as they have since, you know, 1933 and accelerating since then, we wouldn't have the same sort of economic growth. So what the, my, my, one of my big questions I had for you was if we had been on the gold standard still as we were in, you know, 1927 when that guy was earning $1,250 a year, 60 ounces of gold. What would America look like today? There must be some downside to that. It couldn't be all upside, I assume, if we just stayed on the gold standard this whole time. No, it would have been nothing but upside. The way you get wealthy is by producing more than you consume and saving the difference. And people are don't particularly like to save an inflated currency. They're more prone to save gold, and that creates capital. And you need capital in order to make investments and to build technology. So yes, things have been great for the last 80 years. No question about it. But they would have been even greater if we'd had a sound currency during that time. One of the problems, one of the problems with the US in particular, is it's become over-financialized. Yeah. In other words, about 20% of the stocks that are traded are financial. 
And actually, it's more than that because there are other companies like General Motors and GE. They're really financial companies in disguise. So people have gotten away from thinking in terms of producing things, whether that be software or bridges or whatever, to trading stuff, financial instruments. And that's all because of the phony money we have today. So no, it's basically a lie. If uh, our standard of living is in any way higher because of the inflation phony currency that we've used, it's because it has facilitated all this debt. Now, what does the debt do? If we borrowed a million dollars right now, we could live very high off the hog for a while until we had to pay it back. But it would be artificially high standard of living. But when you pay it back, if you pay it back, you're going to have a real genuine reduction in your standard of living. You either mortgage your future or you steal other people's savings from the past, which they don't get back. So, no, it's a fraud. It's criminal that the universities teach this stuff. This is, of course, you know, my belief, and I learned this mostly from you early on. And I think the thing I think that's just not so clear to people is that the foundation of all of these problems is, to me, it seems like it's all the money system. I mean, the government overreach, the war, the perhaps the, the end of Western civilization, all these things, it seems like it all stems from the dishonesty of the money. I mean, what do you think about that? Is that actually root cause to things? You can go deeper than that into a moral philosophy, question of what's right, and what's wrong. If printing up money could make you wealthy, then the Zimbabweans and the Venezuelans, to pick two current examples everybody's familiar with, would be the richest people in the world. But they're the poorest people in the world. And unfortunately, the U.S. government is acting really just like those two places governments are. So, yeah, there's there's no question about it. Money is the lifeblood of society. And if your money's no good, you're essentially reduced to barter. And that's not very efficient. Barter is not something you can use in a sophisticated industrial society. Barter is something for a primitive society. The idea of deflation is so terrifying to the Fed. It's like it's something, it's so unbelievably awful in their imagination. I was reading back and just trying to read different speeches from different Fed chairmen, trying to understand exactly like, what is it about deflation they're so worried about? Because, you know, when you hear the big things it relates to, for somebody like me, it doesn't have a lot of debt. It seems like it's a good thing. It seems like it would be actually good. And I have this like chart that shows all the way back to like the 1670s, inflation and then deflation in America. And up until about 1900, it was pretty well equal. You know, you'd have these spikes of inflation and these equalizing spikes of deflation. And then it was, it would kind of go beyond that central point the whole time. And then at a certain point, by basically 1950, there's almost nothing but inflation, although it's a bit more moderate than some of the extreme cases of inflation earlier. It's because they're terrified of deflation. What awful things actually happen in deflation? Well, deflation That's when the dollar becomes worth more. And there are various reasons why that can happen. But deflation is deadly if you have a lot of debt, because your debt goes up all of a sudden. So that's why, since everybody in the country, from the government on down, is so indebted, they don't want to see deflation. They want to see inflation. Because, among other things, I mean, charity starts at home, and the government looks out for itself first and foremost. It's a separate and discrete entity, the U.S. government, just like as discrete and separate as IBM or, or Apple are separate entities that look out for their own interests. 
So, of course, they want to see inflation because it reduces their debt obligations. And they don't want to see the banks fail, which would happen in a highly indebted society. Because when Mrs. Jones goes down to her bank and finds that the banks failed, she might get very angry and do something crazy, not elect the current guy in office or maybe hang him by his heels from a lamppost. But actually, in a stable society, deflation would be a good thing because prices would be going down every year as there was more wealth in the world and things got more efficient. Prices would constantly be going down and that would encourage savers. And the more savers you have, the more capital there is to invest in technology and God knows what else. We're living in a bizarre world where everything is upside down. I remember reading some economic headlines about last month saying the personal savings rate in the U.S. had gotten to 13%, and they were lamenting that, Mm. lamenting that the personal savings rate was 13% last month. It's crazy. One of the reasons why the Chinese economy has boomed since the days of Deng Xiaoping, since the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, is because the average Chinese was saving 50% back then. That's where they got a lot of the capital to make the progress that they made. If the Chinese didn't save anything, well, where are they going to get the capital to build everything that they have? I think our government is terrified of, of savings because that, that is going to lead, because we're a consumption economy, you know, consumer-led economy. And if people are saving, then that's going to cause a recession, regardless of the virus. If there's any kind of change in consumer attitudes where they stop thinking they need a new iPhone every year, then all of a sudden, you know, we enter a recession. Here's the theory I had, I guess. The money system might perhaps be good for humankind, but very bad for humans themselves. Like maybe it advances civilization further in some way. I'm not saying I necessarily even believe this. I was trying to just question my own belief system, I guess. Maybe there's some good in the long term for humans, humankind, but it seems awful for humans along the way. They get poor, they get robbed essentially of any savings, and then they are encouraged constantly to get levered up and take on more debt. Well, and when they get in trouble because of what people have basically been taught gradually as people with socialist leanings have increasingly taken over the educational system in this country throughout the 20th century and the 21st century, is they increasingly rely on the state. And people forget there's no voluntarism about the state. All this stuff about democracy This is actually nonsense. If it's not one man, one vote, one time, which it is for many congressmen who spend their life there for some reason, just because you put the guy in office doesn't mean he's going to listen to you. He's going to do what's in his best interest. So democracy is a a sham. It's a make-believe system. It, It really doesn't exist. In fact, it's really, really dangerous, democracy, because when everybody believes that they are the government, well, they're kind of obligated to support the government. Otherwise, you're being disloyal. You're being treasonous. We're a democracy. You have to go along with the majority. Actually, we'd be better off, probably, believe it or not, as a principality. Because then, at least people would be suspicious of the prince. They may not want to go along with them. And they may actually feel, yeah, it's okay to hang a prince if he's an especially bad guy and replace him with somebody else. So I know this is completely counter to what most people have been taught. But um, if you've got to have a government of some type, and that's another question that we could talk about it, I'm not convinced that 
a rational society? And that's another question. <laughs> is it a rational society? I'm not convinced that we need a government at all. But if you're going to have one, it's probably better to have a to have some type of a prince that people don't bow down to and don't have to necessarily feel loyal to. You mentioned volunteerism. Could you explain what you mean by that? Because I think that's an idea that's probably not most people aren't familiar with. Well, I'm of the opinion that there's two ways that you can relate to your fellow man, either voluntarily, which is free exchange and agreement, or coercively, where you hold a gun to somebody's head and say, do this, or you're going to be punished. And no matter how you gussy up the um, concept of government, it's all about coercion. And you can disguise it, and you can say, oh, it's the will of the people, it's democracy. But I'd say that democracy is really just mob rule dressed up in a coat and tie. And uh, yes, and I know Winston Churchill's famous dictum, yes, democracy is the worst system there is, except for all the others. Actually, that's not true. If you're going to have a government at all, which is another argument, of course, no, I, I don't think democracy is the best system. What you really want is the market to rule. You want the world to be more like the restaurant where you go to have dinner or the Walmart where you go shopping. You don't want it to be like the GUM department store in the old Soviet Union. The differences between GUM, you know, their sole department store, and a million Walmarts. I don't believe in a centralized government of any type. The market can do it. Anything the government provides, if it's needed and wanted, people will pay for it voluntarily. You know, I think that the thing when people think about the market, they see what we have as a market around us. And people, for the most part, think of, you know, the current capitalist system or whatever as the reason why you need to have coercion because there are bad actors in it. You know, I think the core of a market when it's really, when it's not influenced or tipped by government is that the businesses and the, all market participants have to essentially earn the right to exist. You know, they have to because you can't coerce someone into an engagement, you have to be welcomed in. And how do you become welcomed in? You have to be a value contributor. And that is how real human relations all work in reality. But for some reason, you know, we do have a rigged game when it comes to Wall Street, obviously, to these huge corporations like United, which gets bailed out even after they, you know, the CEO does, does an awful job of running the company for years. It pays themselves scores of millions of dollars in the process. Yep. I might mention that. Of course. Yep. A real market is. It is volunteerist in that way. You earn the right to exist by creating value and you, to be welcomed into any transaction or any, any relationship. That's exactly right. And this idea of democracy, it's, well, a bunch of us get together and we kind of make the rules together. That's how government started. That's not how government started by people deciding these things. Government started when, you know, one tribe of marauders that was heavily armed and militarily competent conquered the peasants and kept them under them. It's a question of which do you think is the more likely origin of the institution of, of government? I'd say the latter one. What was it, Franklin's quote about, you know, democracy is three wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner, or voting what to have what's for dinner, something like yes. that? Yes. Yeah. And I think people are going to find that in real life in the future, because I think the number, most recently, last week's number, is there now 33 million Americans collecting unemployment. And of course, they're also getting their, I don't know what they're getting, $1,200 a month from the government as well. They're supposed to pay taxes on that, incidentally. Only the government could distribute money so incompetently, you know, to make it more complicated and inefficient. I think they've lit another time bomb with giving all this money to people that 
apparently there are many, many millions of people in the country. I don't know how many out of the 33 million currently collecting unemployment, but millions of them are apparently making considerably more now than they were making when they were working. And of course, now they're, they're all going to figure, hey, this is pretty sweet. I want a guaranteed annual income. But you know, just in the short run, all this money that's being distributed to these people, if it's taxable, and it's supposed to be taxable, and the government presents them with a tax bill, there could be a tax revolt, but it won't be a principled tax revolt because taxes are theft and they're wrong. It'll be because, hey, I don't have the money, so I'm not going to give it to you. But uh, six of one, half of the, a dozen of the other, it could be very unpleasant. So in terms of inflation or deflation in the short term, is I think how you invest how people think about even like the home, if you have a home, you know, and you're, and or you have rental properties, like what you do with your assets, I think really depends upon whether you expect there to be inflation or deflation going forward. Well, there's all kinds of people that aren't paying their rent or won't be paying their rent, which means that their landlords could go bust. Will the landlords kick people out of their apartments? How about the people that have houses? They can't pay their mortgage. Forget about don't want to pay their mortgage. Can't pay their mortgage, or they're deeply underwater. Are they going to be kicked out of their houses? Will the government let them be kicked out of their houses this time? What are the consequences of that going to be? What if they don't want to pay their utilities? There was an article I read in Barons of all things last week where there was somebody, some hack that they said was an economist, but of course he can't be because an economist describes the way the world works, not. And this guy said, yes, the government should pay everybody's utilities. It's in Barron's last week, and they published it. I mean, this is how degraded that publication has become. And this guy is serious, saying the government should pay everybody's utilities, including telephones, because if people can't do it, and he builds an argument, well, society will fall apart and all that. All right, well, the government should pay for everything. Well, I think the first thing they should do is they should stop making us pay taxes anymore, because what's the point? I mean, obviously, they're just sending so much money out the door. The deficits are so huge. You know, one thing they could actually do to stimulate the economy, honestly, constructively, is do a one-year tax holiday. I mean, all these things are bad. All the outcomes are bad. But at least it would be more ethical in the way that they're redistributing money, you know? They've painted themselves into a corner this time. I mean, I was surprised with uh, what happened that they were successful in uh, kicking the can down the road one more time with the crisis of 2008 and nine. But now they've reduced interest rates. I thought it was metaphysically impossible to have negative interest rates, but apparently I was wrong. So they've done that, and they're printing up money by the tens of trillions on a worldwide basis. So now what can they do? Okay? I don't know. This is, this is very, very interesting. I mean, from a strictly intellectual point of view, it's just really quite interesting. And so with all that money printing, you would naturally think that you would have this, you could have like huge runaway inflation. But when we talked about fractional reserve banking earlier, isn't because of the way that works that it's essentially if there's default on debt, like credit and money gets can get destroyed at an incredible pace, it's really hard to replace with any amount of money printing. That's true. Let's say somebody's got a jumbo mortgage of a million dollars and he can't pay it and his house is not saleable for but a fraction of that. What happens to that, you know, let's say $500,000? It dies. And it's leveraged like 10 to 1, isn't it? So doesn't it destroy like 10 times as many dollars in the credit system? Well, that's right. It works into reverse because the way a fractional reserve system, which we've had for many years since the Federal Reserve started, was that uh, if you deposit $1,000 in a bank, that $1,000 is sitting there. Now they can relend, let's say, 900 of that, those dollars. But those dollars are deposited back in the bank. 
the borrower gets that money and he spends it and the money goes back into the bank. Now he can they can relend 90% of that 900 and and that's the way it works. So it's, it's kind of a it's actually a, a variety of a Ponzi scheme and it can go into reverse. Yeah, we could have a deflation. The risk for the next few months is will they print up enough money fast enough and bail out enough people so that the whole rotten structure doesn't collapse like a house of cards? Then the danger becomes inflation. It's interesting what's going to come up in the next uh, couple of months. And I appreciate you taking the time today, Doug, to talk to me about it. And I would like to do another one of these in uh, you know, six or eight weeks and just see, see how things look from there. Well, not only that, Matt, in six or eight weeks, certainly, I should have my third novel of the series of seven out, Assassin. I love to talk to people to promote that. Everybody should buy Doug's series, which the first one was Speculator, and the second was Drug Lord, and coming up next is Assassin, and there are several more in the series that are coming. So everybody, I've read them. My 14-year-old son has read them. My girlfriend has read them. I encourage everyone to read them. They're really incredible. Everybody listening to this should definitely go to internationalman.com and sign up for Doug's newsletter. There's lots of, if you like any of the thoughts he's talking about here today, you'll see a lot more of that in that newsletter. Mm, And it's free. That's pretty cheap. It is pretty cheap. (laughs) All right, Doug. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.